Hi, I'm Tyra G, your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you. Fearsome and generous, humble and honest in search of new possibility and purpose. Every week, we meet at this table for an hour to experience, educate, encourage, and empower one another through our joys and our lessons learned. We share topics that tradition tells us there's some things you just don't talk about. But right here, we live beyond the judgment and the wreckage. We share some aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for far too long. Every week, we start right where we are. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. There's one requirement. You must come dressed in your authentic inner awesome, believing that impossible is merely a word. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your mobile device, your TV, or your computer. And we are webcast worldwide. Yes, we are at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. I know, I know, I know, it's date night. That's okay. You can listen to us after the fact, wherever you get your podcasts. Just key in, frankly speaking, with Tyra G. And those of you who love to send me these wonderful emails, keep it up. Those of you that want to, it's Tyra at TyraGarlington.com. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our theme song. And for naming it, I'm Listening. This quarter, our theme has been Reflect, Restore, Reposition. Each one of these processes separately or together are a part of becoming who we are. The trigger to engage can be external or internal. The most critical success factor is the ability to separate what happens to us from who we are. Who we are embodies our spirit. Today we're going to focus on the power of our spirit to sustain us, to move successfully from one place to another, physically, mentally, and emotionally. To get Today we're going to hear stories about indomitable spirits, unstoppable, invincible, and impossible to defeat human spirits. My guest today will share stories about a potential group of individuals whose lives breathe new hope into the theory that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. 
In fact, she's been traveling the country, populating the airwaves, celebrating this population in her latest book called Indomitable Immigrants, Stories of Perseverance and Resilience. As she shares her passion about this topic, she will talk to our hearts, taking us to a new level of understanding where faith and hope are the GPS. But, but to jumpstart our conversation and to create a common thought space for our time together, I want to share excerpts from an article about the indomitable spirit of the Brooklyn Bridge architect. And I quote, in 1883, a creative engineer named John Roebling was inspired by an idea to build a spectacular bridge connecting New York with the Long Island. However, the bridge building experts throughout the world thought this was an impossible, impossible feat and told Roebling to forget it. It just could not be done. It wasn't practical. It never been done before. Roebling could not ignore the vision he had in his mind for this bridge. He thought about it all the time, and he knew deep in his heart that it could be done. He just had to share the dream with someone else. After much discussion and persuasion, he managed to convince his son, Washington, and lift up and coming with him as he became an engineer. The bridge became a reality. Working together for the first time, the father and son developed concepts on how it could be accomplished and how the obstacles could be overcome. With great excitement and inspiration and the headiness of a wild challenge before them, they hired a crew and began to build the dream bridge. The project started well. But when it was only a few months underway, a tragic accident on the site took the life of John Roebling. Washington was also injured and left with a certain amount of brain damage, which resulted in him not being able to walk or to talk. We told him so, crazy men and their crazy dreams, was foolish to chase vision. Everyone had a negative comment to make and felt the project should be scrapped since Roebling, since the Roeblings, were the only ones who knew how to build the bridge. In spite of his hardship, Washington was never discouraged and still had a burning desire to complete the bridge, and his mind was still as sharp as ever. He tried to inspire and pass on the enthusiasm to some of, the, some of his friends, for they were too daunted by the task. As he lay on his bed in his hospital room, with the sunlight streaming through the window, a gentle breeze blew the flimsy white curtains apart, and he was able to see the sky and the tops of the trees outside for just a moment. It seemed that there was a message for him not to give up. So he decided that he was going to teach through his finger, the only finger he had to communicate with his wife, a code 
that they would use. He would touch his, arm, his wife's arm with that finger, indicating to her that he wanted her to call the engineers again. Then he used the same method of tapping her arm to tell the engineers what to do. It seemed foolish, but the project was underway again. For 13 years, Washington tapped out his instructions with his finger on his wife's arm until the bridge was finally completed. Today, the spectacular Brooklyn Bridge stands in all its glory as a tribute and a triumph of one man's indomitable spirit and his determination not to be defeated by circumstances. It is also a tribute to the engineers and their teamwork and to their faith in a man who was considered mad by half the world. It stands, too, as a tangible monument to the love and devotion of his wife, who for 13 long years patiently decoded the messages of her husband and told her engineers what to do. Perhaps this is one of the best examples of a never-say-die attitude that overcomes a terrible physical handicap and achieves an impossible goal. Often when we face obstacles in our day-to-day life, our hurdles seem very small in comparison to what many others have faced. The Brooklyn Bridge shows us that dreams that seem impossible can be realized with determination and persistence no matter what the odds. Let me repeat, impossible is merely a word that describes the degree of difficulty. And now, to our distinguished guest, Marjorie Levine Cher, who is our sitting across the table anxious to talk to you about her passion and how the term indomitable works in her life. Now, I've already cautioned her so she knows that she is supposed to now assume the persona of a human book and introduce herself to you in a way that you can understand how she got to this point to be so interested in her topic. Marjorie, bring our listeners along with your story. Thank you, Tyra. We all have bridges to cross, don't we? Yes, we do. Certainly do. That was a wonderful story. Um, I am a grateful person. I know how fortunate I am, and one of the reasons I have been very fortunate in my life is that I've been able to follow my passions throughout my career. Although these passions have included child care and early childhood development, work-life balance issues, and issues affecting low-income communities, working with immigrant communities has always been woven throughout. In the 1970s and early 80s, I was running the Falls Church McLean Children's Center, a child care center that served a low-income population. In those years, a large portion of our children were Vietnamese. Their parents had fled Vietnam after the Americans left, and they were among the lucky ones to be admitted to the United States. I'm still a volunteer and supporter of that center, and the population has shifted over the years toward Hispanic-Latino populations now. Much more recently, I was the executive for the Medical Care for Children Partnership Foundation, which provided medical and dental care for uninsured children. We served a heavily immigrant population as well. 
In the decades in between, I owned a consulting firm, and among our clients were nonprofits who also served a varied immigrant population. I also served on boards of nonprofits and volunteered to help low-income, mostly immigrant adults get started in this country. Throughout the decades, I've had nothing but immense admiration for the immigrants I've worked with. They've come from all over the world, and they have shown enormous perseverance, resilience, and grit. They have had to start their lives over, and they've done it with grace and fortitude. They've built their own beautiful Brooklyn bridges. My work with immigrants has inspired me throughout my career, and it's given me great perspective. I know that I have nothing to complain about. I am a lucky person to be born in America and not born into poverty. So I have been more than slightly angered by the rise in anti-immigrant rhetoric in this country. Unless we are 100% Native American, or unless our ancestors were brought here as slaves, we all come from immigrants. All four of my grandparents were immigrants, escaping persecution in Eastern Europe because they were Jews. It took only one generation for my extended family to become professionals in America and live out their American dream. And this is true for most immigrants. They may or may not realize their, a level of financial stability that they want, but their children almost always become successful individuals. And that's what every single one of them wishes for more than anything else. So I channeled my anger into writing another of my life, into another of my life passions, writing, and wrote my fourth book, Indomitable Immigrant Stories of Perseverance and Resilience. The purpose of this book is to help change the narrative around immigrants and show that they deserve our admiration and respect. I want to uh, put a comma in that um, in your introduction to make sure that our audience knew all of the locations you've talked about are in Virginia in the United States thus far, correct? Y yes. Uh, the, the immigrants I've interviewed are in the metro D.C. area, many of them in northern Virginia. Wonderful. Now, as we move forward in our conversation, you said something to me at the beginning of the show, and you talked about the quote on the back of your book. And let's, uh, let's listen to what the quote is, but then let's walk behind those words and talk about, yeah, let's just talk about this. I love Zaire. Zaire is one of the men that I interviewed for the book, and his quote is on the back because I think it is just the essence of what uh, immigrants to this country feel. He says, America is an idea. It is the culture of tolerance. All different colors and religions can live in coexistence. All can contribute positively. This idea must be a leader in the world. This idea must be preserved. If anything happened to this idea, it would be very bad for the rest of the world. So I'm hearing Zaire say, in the mind is a thought, but in the heart is a new tradition. And um, I wanted to... Before we begin the stories, because I'm, I'm excited to listen. I, I know our listeners will be as well. But as you gathered these people that were the subject of your book, where did you find them? How did you decide, I want you in my book? Uh, it was, it was um, 
somewhat difficult, but there are so many immigrants from all over the world in this area. Um, I volunteer uh, quite often, uh, almost every day actually, at Northern Virginia Family Service, a huge nonprofit. I work in the Training Futures Program, which trains uh, uh, a low-income population that is mainly immigrants to start a career in this country. Many of them are working fast food or driving Uber or working in Walmart as greeters. And what we try to do is get them a professional career, starting as an administrative person, uh, where they have a salary and benefits and a career ladder. So from my volunteer work, I also volunteer in other nonprofits and my networking, uh, people were referred to me. I wanted people who had been here for some time. Generally, my uh, stories are people who've been here from three to ten years because I wanted them to uh, be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. They have been through lots of hardships. They have shown the grit and determination, and they have come out the other side, and I wanted to uh, tell their stories. So I found the people by other people referring them to me. Okay, so you have a reference database of potential stories. Um, One thing I want us to do, you talked about your book, and we've said the title, Indomitable. Define that for us. What's the operational definition of that? You know, it's interesting that you asked this question because I actually have uh, read parts of this book to the class I'm working with right now of new immigrants. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, the first thing I say is the title of the book is Indomitable. Does anybody know what that means? And nobody raises their hand Um, because it's not a common word. That's true. Um, But what it means is that they cannot give up. They do not give up. When they're pushed down, they get right back up and try even harder. So indomitable means you just keep at it. So we're in your classroom. You're in front of your classroom. You presented this question, no hands. And then you, as their mirror, begin the journey of pouring into them that they are unstoppable, that they can do this. Tell me, okay, we're still in the classroom. What are some of the issues that present themselves now from Uh, the the immigrant perspective? So I am a volunteer there. There Mm -hmm. is paid staff, (laughs) but (laughs) I'm a volunteer who hangs on a lot Uh because I love this work. Uh Um, And um, one of the things that's wonderful about this program that uh, we uh, call Training Futures of Mm -hmm. Northern Virginia Family Service is that it doesn't just teach skills. Um, It teaches um, them to change their self-concept. Okay. Uh, through through showing them how they can be successful by learning new things, by learning about American culture, by learning soft skills as well as hard skills. Now, they let's, realize let's they put can a comma succeed. there. There are people that will not know the difference between uh, soft skills and hard skills. So what are you talking about, Marjorie? Okay. So hard skills, they learn some computer skills. Okay. They learn, um, you know, a little bit more English. Um Soft skills are the most important skills of all. Soft skills are why they will be hired. Um, It is attitude. It is how you present yourself in an interview, how you make eye contact, which is very, very important. And in many cultures around the world, it's uh, assumed that it is rude 
to make eye contact. So we have to teach them about American culture and how important that is. A firm handshake, looking someone in the eye, dressing professionally. Um, this is our culture, and other people do not necessarily know it. Why should they? It's not their own culture, so we have to teach it. Smiling. Um, all these things are often considered rude and silly in other countries, but in our country it's essential to look to it appear personable and, and uh, a good team player. And, and that's to the connect. Kind of, and to connect. Yes. And one of the things that I noticed uh, in my volunteer life is as Americans, very often we don't have the cultural competence to understand mm -hmm. that it's a tradition in that country not to do the very things we're asking them to do. Eye contact is not just off-putting. It can be insulting. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, one of the things that astonished me when I was working with a uh, uh, population from uh, Asia was the intergenerational conversation, how it was inappropriate for little children to talk about medical things, mm -hmm. bodily things of adults. And yet those little children became the transfer or the communicator. So they had to go to the doctor yes. with yes. their parents. Yes. And they became conflicted because they were the only one that knew English. Yes. And so you become a Band-Aid or a bridge. I like the way you started. There are many bridges uh, to help them understand that here it's different. If I walked into that classroom, tell me who I would see gender-wise. Would I see more women, more uh, men, young, or what would they look like? Oh, I'm just guessing from observation, but I'd say 60% uh, women, 40% men. Interesting. Um, so maybe closer to half and half, a little more women probably. Um, and um, they come from all over the world, which mm -hmm. is what makes it so interesting and it's a real eye-opener for the people themselves because they, they're they used to coming from a country where everybody is the same. Exactly, yes. And everybody looks the same, acts yes. the same, speaks the same, yes. and is ex has the same expectations of them. And then they come here, especially in this area, the greater D.C. area, is so diverse. Mm -hmm. And they see people of all kinds from all over the world and learning to interact with all different kinds of people is a wonderful skill. You know, that might be the most important soft skill. Yes, exactly. Because that involves acceptance. That's right. And it also involves risk. Yes. Because yes. it's not a normal comfort level. That's right. So do they do exercise? How do, how do you raise the comfort? Okay, it's the first day of school, you're volunteering, and uh, there they are. How yes. do you break the ice? What do you do? So they, the, the curriculum is, is well set. I have to give all the credit to tra the training teachers people at Northern Virginia Family Service. They know exactly what they're doing. They have icebreakers. They mm. have uh, one of the parts of the program is called Speakers Club, mm -hmm. and they learn to make speeches in front of the class, which is, you know, 20 or 30 people. Yes. Um, but many of them have never stood up and spoken uh, publicly before, so they are told to talk about, uh, you know, a three-minute speech about themselves. And in this way, other all the people learn about different cultures. So it's a natural kind of learning, and it's a very cohesive group. So they eat lunch together, and they talk, and they become friends often. And they're building community. 
Exactly. Now, there's interesting when you said uh, it's difficult for them to stand up and speak in front of people. And what they may not realize is that's a very uniting uh, quality because there's so many people here that have the same issue. Exactly. And exactly. I love the fact that they have a speakers club. Yes. That is wonderful. So um, now I've kind of got a visual. I've got maybe 60-40, maybe 50-50 uh, gender, male, female. You didn't tell me age ranges. So I'm going to... The ages are, um, I, I don't know their ages. They look like. Okay, that <laughs> That's works. That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> we'll use I it. look like I'm 110, so I don't want to guess other people. Um, I would say 40s, 50s, okay. um, mm -hmm. some younger, mm -hmm. but most of them probably in their 40s and 50s. And Okay, so now we're getting into who these people are, and what I'd like to do is kind of take a couple of minutes and read one of their stories, which will bring to life uh, for our listeners a little bit more. But it'll be from the mouth of, correct? I interpret their story. Okay, you interpret. I'm going to add just a little bit of music. You go right ahead. I'm going to read the story of Nadir, who is an Azerbaijani Turk. Uh, people can look that up, Azerbaijani Turk. Um, a very tall, good-looking guy came through the doors of the coffee shop. He flashed a huge smile and deftly slid into the chair waiting for him. That bright smile and firm, friendly handshake had the distinct flavor of a winner. He got himself a latte and settled into his story. Nadir is an Azerbaijani Turk who was born and raised in Iran. Because of his ethnicity, he was subjected to racism and discrimination and was routinely insulted with racial epithets. However, Nadir was eventually able to go to college in Iran, where he majored in accounting. While in college, he was active against the discrimination of Azerbaijani Turks, which caused him to be under government surveillance. Some of his friends were jailed. Because of his activism, Nadir was prevented from going to graduate school and was not able to get a job. In 2009, he decided to leave Iran and go to Turkey. It was very hard to leave his family and his country, but he knew he had no future in Iran. The government was happy to let him go because they certainly did not want agitators in their country. Nadir had played basketball in college, and basketball changed his life in Turkey. When he moved there, he was unable to get a job, but he found a professional basketball team in Ankara and eventually played with three different Turkish teams. He made many friends through basketball and was also able to continue his education. He earned a master's degree in accounting and finance and from one of the best universities in Turkey. At the same time, he volunteered with many organizations working for human rights in Iran he collected data on human rights abuses monthly and reported them to the UN Human Rights Watch and other organizations. He was very worried that the Turkish government would send him back to Iran for his pro-Azerbaijani activities because he knew that the Iranian intelligence service worked in Turkey. 
In 2014, Nadir decided to leave Turkey because of the country's poor economic situation and because he was pre prevented from getting work authorization. He applied to the UN for refugee status. Two years later, the UN finally granted him refugee status and sent him to Northern Virginia, where there were people he knew from Turkey. When Nadir arrived in Northern Virginia, he received some help from a Catholic charity. He also had a case manager from Northern Virginia Family Service who told him about the Northern Virginia Family Service Training Futures Program. Nadir had little confidence that he would be accepted because he didn't think his English was good enough, but indeed he was accepted into the program. Although he had good computer skills, he had to study hard to succeed in his English classes. He notes, Training Futures was my best decision in the U.S. It is more than just learning concrete things. It opened doors for me and showed me the right way to get ahead. In October 2016, after Nadir had completed five months of training, Training Futures arranged for him to have an internship um, in human resources at the Center for Community Change. After the internship ended, he it was extended for two more months and they paid him. He attended Training Futures in the morning and at noon went to the center. He had to travel a long distance by subway and it made for long, hard days, but Nadir had no doubt it was worth it. The center extended his internship two more times and finally, in August 2017, he was offered a full-time job. Nadir now feels he understands how to succeed in the U.S. I am working and studying. I have to be willing to open doors for myself. Education is the thing that will change my life. This is not Europe. After a while, the government doesn't help. You must work hard and pay attention to your education. It's not easy for anyone. Nadir is certainly correct that life is not easy in the U.S. for new immigrants or the poor. But Nadir managed to emigrate and acclimate himself in two very different countries. He found ways to support himself when he was discriminated against and although dangerous, he never stopped fighting for the rights of his people. And there is one additional thing that Nadir has been able to do. At the age of three, Nadir had contracted polio and has had to use a wheelchair ever since. Nadir's successes, emigrating, being selected for the world-famous Turkish Wheelchair Basketball League, his career, his advocacy work, are all the more remarkable when you know about the long-standing long hurdle that he also had to navigate all along the way. Amazing. Of course, you know, I have a page full of questions and notes. There's <laughs> something I don't think that we actually talked about, Marjorie, and I know we talked about indomitable, but did we talk about refugee, the word concept refugee versus immigrant? Did we talk? We did not. So um, immigrants... It's very difficult to come to this country. I want to make that clear to everyone. Um, it, it, it takes years to be accepted into this country. It took years before our current administration, and now it's even much more difficult. Um, all the stories in the book talk about how people got here, and often they had to wait years to get a visa. And immigrants get a visa because... Um, they are able to, uh, there was something called the diversity immigrant visa, which is really a lottery. And they applied and were lucky enough to get it. That's a 
that's a years-long process. And once you get the visa, you have to um, undergo medical tests and background checks, and you need references. Nothing is easy. It took each of these people years and years to get to this country. Uh, refugees are people who are fleeing persecution. They are in uh, danger of their lives. They have to apply for asylum, and that takes a long time to, um, to, to achieve, if they do achieve it. Sometimes they're able to get into this country on an emergency basis, and then it takes them years to get actual asylum status and refugee status. So people come. I actually have four, four sections in my book. The first one is refugees and asylum seekers, those who came here because they were in danger of losing their lives. The second is people who came here because of love complications, and things did not turn out the way they had thought they would. So that's... Talk, talk about that a little bit more. So I, I can read you the story of Priyanka, who is a, an alias, and a lot of the... Not a, a number of the people in the book, I use aliases, and I don't have their pictures as I do for others because they are seeking asylum and they are in danger. I got but it. Priyanka is an Indian woman who came here. Um, I can read the story later, but basically yeah. she came here um, uh, because she loved America and she wanted to live here, and, and her parents wouldn't let her go unless she was married, so she married a strange an Indian man who was a total stranger, and ah, it turned out it. very badly. And it often does. And it often does. Yes, yes. And um, the third section of my book is people who came here for opportunity because there was no opportunity to make a living and provide for themselves and their families in their home country. And the fourth section is children of immigrants, which you touched on before, Tyra, um, and how they fared coming here as children Often there was a role reversal, which is what you were talking yes, about, yes, where the yes. children uh, really have to take on adult roles when they're still quite small themselves and how that affects them. Absolutely, and that's kind of where I walked into uh, my passion about this population, mm -hmm. that and uh, the mistreatment of day laborers. And mm -hmm. the irony about that is how much our economy depends on the presence Yes. Of these people that we're treating in a way that's less than, a lot of less than, yes. that they're not enough. Yes. That they're not enough. So what, um, what? oh, there's so much in this I want to talk about. Uh, obviously, Nadir, and when you talked about him being an athlete, it wasn't until later you talked about him being an athlete in a wheelchair. Yes. And I have a particular interest, yet again, in polio because Rotary International, which is uh, – the organization, one of the organizations I belong to, that is one of their primary uh, international uh, initiatives. They join with World Health Organization, CDC, Bill Gates, etc. We've been uh, fortunate enough to eradicate it in all but three countries. Mm -hmm. But understanding that Nadir is in a foreign country mm -hmm. dealing with this, mm -hmm. and he survived to the extent that he could be an athlete. He sounds like, to me, he sounds like the exception rather than the rule. Am I wrong? He is. I, I don't know how many people are like Nadir, but I do know that his determination and perseverance are outstanding. Yes. Um, and he is a delightful person to boot. So everything that Nadir has accomplished would be a 
amazing for anyone. Yes. Um, that he's an athlete, that he's worked for the UN on, the, on human rights issues, that yes. he attained a master's degree, all while in a wheelchair. He emigrated to two different countries. Just the physicality of having to do all that is, is difficult, let alone the mental strain. You know, maybe we need to get Nadir on the show. Inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something that occurred to me as I was listening to you. What about the living accommodations? How does that work for them? Are they, uh, are their families waiting to help them? Are they on their own? Are there 20 families in one house? What does that look like? All of the above for the people in the book. Um, mo- many of them came here um, without without family, especially those that were seeking asylum. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes they are. Uh, shown an apartment by a nonprofit group, but they still have to pay rent for it, um, and it's not always, you know, easy easy for them or in the best of circumstances. So it's difficult to find living. Sometimes they have, they do have family. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there are many people living in in a house, mm-hmm. uh, as you would imagine. Mm-hmm. So there's all different kinds of circumstances. Some of them have, um, some of the stories in the house, uh, people were just, I'm sorry, some of the stories in the book, mm-hmm. people were on the verge of becoming homeless and they found a, an aunt or a cousin that they could, could move in with. Absolutely. And, and then I'm thinking, okay, living conditions, English as a second language. Now, I know uh, our junior, uh, our community college, Northern Virginia Community College, has a huge English as a second mm-hmm. language program. Now, in training futures, uh, how are they managed in terms of increasing their competency in English? Is it are they going to the college? Is there a language program in training futures that is intense? How do they do that? So they have to pass a test to get into training futures. So it's not the first step for immigrants. Okay. Generally, they have been through ESL already at, at Northern Virginia Community College or through one of the nonprofits, literacy councils or right. other. Uh-huh. Um, and they have to have a certain level of English. And then um, there, there are not uh, specific English classes per se at okay. Training Futures, but there's a lot of emphasis on learning to uh, write emails and speak. And uh, as a volunteer, that's what I concentrate on since I am a professional speaker and writer. Mm-hmm. I teach them to write and speak as best I can when I'm, when I'm there. Um, and we, the training classes are from um, 8.30 in the morning till 2 o'clock. Mm-hmm. I generally do a special English class from 2 to 3 so mm-hmm. that they can stay after they do. You know, a lot of these people are taking great, uh, in Training Futures, take great sacrifice because they aren't making as much money in their jobs because they have to come to class. Mm-hmm. So after class, often they run off to Panera or wherever they're, they're working. working. Right, 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 yeah. <coughs> um, but, um, you know, those who can uh, stay and, and learn a little bit more. So generally they have an, an adequate level of English when they start. Mm-hmm. And we also have volu- other volunteers who do accent reduction with them. That's what I was going to get to. Which is really important. Yes. And that's yes. done you know, before or after classes as well. Where We have um, volunteers who are speech therapists. Yes. I actually um, was working at Northern Virginia Community College and aware of the ESL uh, program and how important the accent reduction mm-hmm courses mm-hmm. were. Yes. And what people misunderstand, I think, the most 
is if someone is not uh, proficient in our language, they assume that is directly related to their mental capacity. Well, that's really unfortunate. Yes. Um, how many Americans speak foreign languages? Well, <laughs> not many. I stumble. I stumble. Believe me, I stumble. But I consider it when I travel my duty to yes. try. Yes. And what has been my experience is when they realize you're trying, the natives of the country <laughs> help you through. Yes. And they respect you and they're kind. Yes. Yes. Um, tell me, before we move from Nadir, uh, and I want to get to Brianka because I love a love story. Uh, 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 before we get to Nadir, leave him. What do you think his message in a bottle would be to um, someone like himself coming? What would he tell them uh, to beware of, to be joyful about? What would he say? I think he would have to say that you can overcome any obstacle if you work hard enough. If you never give up, you can do it. Indomitable. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love it. Um, why don't we, because I'm curious about Bianca and the love connection, uh, can we take a couple of minutes and read her? Sure. Pri Bianca is not a happy love story, though. Oh, okay. But, um, well, okay. <laughs> but she still came here for love, <laughs> so she's in my love section. Okay, she's in the love <laughs> section. Here we go. Priyanka earned an MBA and worked as an IT engineer in her native India. How did she end up almost 8,000 miles away in California, living in a homeless shelter for abused victims? Priyanka grew up happily in Punjab, India. As an IT engineer, she had many American clients who she liked very much. Priyanka appreciated the American culture she was learning about and after a while decided that she wanted to come to the U.S. to live and work. Her family was very traditional, though, and it was unheard of for a woman to move out of her family home until she was married. Her parents refused to allow her to leave, but they told her that if she got married, they would approve of her leaving for the U.S. Priyanka agreed to get married. Priyanka's parents then researched online to arrange an Indian husband for her who lived in America. Very quickly, her parents found a match on a matrimonial website. In April 2012, her fiancé came to India to marry her. Priyanka had not met him before the wedding. In May 2012, Priyanka and her new husband landed in Arizona. Priyanka was surprised that in America you do everything without help. You, you cook for yourself and clean for yourself. Priyanka was able to teach herself to cook with a YouTube video. <laughs> but she was very unhappy to realize that she couldn't work because she had a dependent visa. These were not the only surprises for Priyanka. She, sh she soon discovered that her husband was abusive controlling, and threatening. She knew no one in America. She began to live life as a slave to her husband. She soon became pregnant, and after the baby was born, her life was only taking care of the baby, cooking, cleaning, and taking care of every one of her husband's needs. Her husband wouldn't let her drive or do anything. She was not allowed to have a phone. She could have no friends. He tracked her Gmail and Facebook accounts. 
she was completely isolated and had to be with her husband every every minute when he was around. Priyanka totally lost her own life. She did not realize that she was being abused. In India, she learned that you stay with your husband no matter what, and you try to make the best of it. Her husband's job transferred him to California, so the family moved. In 2016, her mother came to visit. Her husband tried to make sure everything looked happy, and he pretended to be very pleasant and welcoming. But after a while, Priyanka's mother wasn't cool. Priyanka had gained weight and looked in fear at all times. Her father came after a month of her mother's visit and told her to leave her husband. This was a shocking thing in their culture, but her parents realized what was happening. However, Priyanka was stuck. Her visa was dependent on her husband, and her husband told her she couldn't take their son to India. He told Priyanka's parents that he would try harder to be a good husband. Her husband told her to tell her father to go. Priyanka's self-esteem was lost, and she figured she had to tolerate everything because of her visa status. She cried to herself all the time about how she had lost everything. Priyanka had terrible pelvic pain due to abuse. Her husband finally allowed her to go to a clinic. The doctor there told her to call a domestic violence shelter. But Priyanka was brainwashed by her husband and did nothing. Her husband started to work from home so he could control her even more. On another visit to the doctor, the doctor told her, if you don't do anything, you will, your son will be an abuser someday. And that woke her up. Priyanka had a cousin in Virginia whom her parents called. From Virginia, her cousin then called California shelters to find Priyanka a place to go. They found a place, and Priyanka left her home and took her son to the shelter. She knows the shelter saved her life. They provided counseling and attorneys. During her time in the shelter, she got a restraining order against her husband. Her son was three years old at the time and had PTSD from watching domestic violence. She also began divorce proceedings, but her husband remained threatening and said he was going to destroy her whole family. Her husband had money to pay for her own, for his own expensive lawyer. A judge agreed to her request to take her son to Virginia so they could live with Priyanka's cousin. Her husband was granted eight days a month for visitation. There was much fighting about the divorce and custody, and Priyanka believes he made her son fly to see him just for revenge against Priyanka. Priyanka had been out of work for five years and didn't know the American culture at all. Luckily enough, Priyanka learned of Training Futures. In Training Futures, Priyanka regained her confidence, learned about the American office culture, and improved her communication skills. She applied for a work permit for abused victims and received it. She could finally be independent of her husband. What an enormous relief that was. Priyanka's divorce is almost final. Her husband has moved to Virginia so he can see the child, although Priyanka believes he's just trying to harass her. She can only hope that with her work, that her work permit keeps getting renewed. Priyanka has a good job now and has made friends. Her son is getting counseling and is in school. Life is looking much better. Priyanka is so grateful to America. She can finally use her professional skills. 
There was a shelter that gave her and her son a bed, food, clothes, therapy, access to medical care, and legal help. She is so grateful for all the help she received from social service organizations. Once she realized what had happened to her and was able to regain some self-confidence, she was able to use her education to research how to access things she and her son need and how to find work. Priyanka now works as a quality assurance engineer, and there are opportunities for growth. Everything she does now is for her son. She does not want him to grow up to be like her ex-husband. She is so thankful to America for all the support she received, and now she wants to work and give back to America and the government. Priyanka says, I feel like writing a thank you note to America. Oh my goodness. I was making notes, as you might guess, and um, the thing that stood out was the strength of yes. Priyanka. Yes. And she started out with innate abilities. Yes. She started out as a winner. Yes. Smart and determined. I want to go. She had courage. Yes. And she came to a place that was hammering as a result of her gender, her culture, her cultural traditions, her economic status, having to be tied to her husband. Mm -hmm. um, she had all kinds of things to kill what she came here with. Yes. But the two things I found beautiful was the love of her parents who saw beyond the cultural traditions and said, I've got to save my daughter yes. and her son. Um, one of the things that apparently crosses borders is that horrible story called domestic violence. Yes. And uh, I personally am volunteering in a space that, um, oh, it's such a tragedy. I, I, I applaud any woman with the courage to say, finally, enough. And we do not have enough support sprinkled around our country to say I'm here for you. That's right. So, um, all right, we're definitely needing in that area. I would uh, just add that Priyanka is an alias, of course. Yes, you did. Okay. And I'm using the alias because of reasons that we talked about. The bottom line is whatever her name is, I'm calling her courageous. Exactly. I'm calling her indomitable. I'm calling her a shero. Yes. And I'm congratulating her. And I'm, I'm praying that her son is able to erase the images that have given him PTSD. Her son is adorable. I've met him. Have you? He's a cutie pie, and I'm sure that he will be okay because she's a wonderful mother. One thing I wanted to do quickly is uh, I want you to talk about that just a little bit about the, the section on children. Would you mind? Yes. Okay. So... The section on children uh, has a number of people who were brought here as, as children. Uh -huh. And what happens most often is they learn English very quickly. Yes, they do. Because children do. Mm -hmm. And the parents have a harder time. Mm -hmm. And the parents are also trying to, you know, eke out a living for the family so they don't have a whole lot of time to be learning English. So there's a role reversal. Uh, the children are, are the translators. And uh, there is one, one story in there where uh, the parents had, um, Brigitte's story, the parents had 
uh, medical problems. And Brigitte, as a child, went to the doctors and was the person who explained to her parents what the doctor said, Mm -hmm. who made sure that they were getting the correct medicines. Mm -hmm. This is a child, uh, you know, under 10 years old who was taking on adult adult, uh, responsibilities. And uh, very difficult you know all the kinds of things that people have to do in this in this country, getting repair people, uh, have figuring out how to rent. Her parents were able to make enough money to buy a house, and it was Brigitte who fig- figured out the um, credit Aww. issues and and told her parents how how that all worked. Yes. So she was truly the adult. As a result. Brigitte has started a translation business as an adult, and she has a thriving, huge uh, business, Uno Translations. Oh, Um, my goodness. And the reason she did it is she wants to uh, uh, have other children of immigrants not have to go through those problems that she had. Oh, my goodness. That's wonderful. I actually experienced what you're talking about, and the term that was used when um, we were dealing with children as translators was children in the middle. Yes, yes. And... uh, one uh, child was totally traumatized because it was the grandparents and they were Chinese. Of course, the language was an issue, but certainly you didn't talk about your body mm-hmm. and functions. And then the other thing that was such a tragedy, tragedy to me was in one of our communities where the addresses were all in Korean. And when the first responders came, there were occasions when they couldn't find yes. And one of the best initiatives that we worked on was to make sure that the addresses were in both Korean and English. Yeah, so important. And what people don't, I don't think they think about, is those kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, um, yeah. So, so important. Um, the thing that I want to do now is for you, Marjorie, to give your message in a bottle to our listeners. What did you hope the book would do? What is it doing? What is it doing? And uh, what is your next? I specifically chose people who were really not extraordinary, didn't have talents, weren't great athletes. Uh, I mean, we could have Nadir as an exception. Yes. <laughs> did, you know, often books are written about special people. Yes. Um, I wanted to write about ordinary people caught in extraordinary circumstances mm-hmm. because I'd like us to access our feelings of this could be me. This could be me. Mm-hmm. Um, we are lucky to be born in America, those of us who are. Um, but, you know, it's luck. That's it. You could have been born somewhere else. The, the government could be terrible. You could be persecuted or you could have no opportunity to make a living for yourself. And I want us to to feel for these people and see how hard they work, how, how determined they are, and give them the admiration and dignity that they deserve. Quickly, uh, if some of our listeners think, you know, I, I like what that lady said. How do I reach her? Where do I get her book? Can you tell our listeners how to do that? I have a website, www.immigrantgrit.com. And on the website, immigrantgrit.com, uh, you can order the book, which is on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and you can get more information about uh, the book and partners and the people I've interviewed. Awesome sauce. You know, um, I love it when uh, I get together 
with people, friends, women who are courageous enough to look and walk beyond the words, giving each other permission to expose the gifts of imperfection without judgment. Frankly speaking, is our time and our space to help, to heal, to educate, and to encourage each other into the best version of ourselves, no matter where we are in our journey. And we've been talking about some journeys. We've just given you a taste. But if you've got an imagination, one foot in reality and one foot in hope, you know that there's a lot more we need to be doing. You've been listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And as I said, we are broadcast every single week, Saturday night, 8 o'clock, on www.radiofairfax.org. There's something I need for you to do. I need for you to let me be your mirror for a second. And I want you to see that. You are worthy. You are stronger than you feel. You're smarter than you know. You're more beautiful than you could ever imagine. Every single thing that has happened to you along the way will have a use in your life. We've said it several times. Impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. You came here. You're chosen. You're important. Treat yourself like someone you love. This is Tyra G. Your seat at the table is guaranteed. I can't wait until next time. You take yourself, treat yourself like someone you love, and I'll be thinking about you in the same way. Take good care now. Until next time.